glad, we're glad that Jeff is back. So let me tell you just a little bit about Jeff and Laura. They moved here to Franklin in 1999, and they were immediately uh, on staff at Fellowship. Jeff was a community groups director, community groups pastor, rather, during that time. Now, if you remember where Fellowship was in 1999, some of you were around then. It was meeting at Franklin High School. This was before we had a, a Brentwood campus or a Franklin campus. It was meeting at Franklin High School, small church. Jeff was one of the early staff members there. And then from 1999 to 2010, he was on our staff. And he, he served in a number of roles, mostly in adult ministry. Uh, he was a small groups pastor. He was a uh, congregational care, managed a lot of staff. He was on our teaching team as one of our teaching pastors. He served as an elder. There was a season in the life of this church where Jeff Helton held the church together from a leadership perspective during a very significant crisis. He was the one doing the primarily teaching, primarily leading in this church. And I wanted to mention that because we all owe gratitude to Jeff Helton uh, for his role in the life of fellowship. And I was thinking about this between services, Jeff. That's appropriate. Oh, I, I know you, you know, Jeff's a pretty humble guy, and, and I've, I've been saying this about him just as a way to publicly thank him, and I thought between services, you, you're probably thinking, you know, if it hadn't been me, God would have used someone else, and that's exactly true, but it's pretty cool he used you, and, and I'm grateful, and I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, Jeff and Laura are back at Fellowship, worshiping with us as of this past Easter. Uh, they are now full-time, since 2010, uh, full-time uh, serving at Wellspring Coaching and Training, which is an, a ministry that they started, and they do marriage counseling and marriage coaching. They also do other kinds of coaching and counseling, and it's a fantastic ministry. I would encourage you to talk to Jeff about, go to their website, uh, Wellspring Coaching and Training. Uh, I wanna pray for Jeff as he comes to teach, and I wanna pray for our offering, and then we'll continue to worship as we submit to God's word. Father, thank you for a chance to worship here this morning in this place. Thank you for this body. Thank you for the way that um, many that are here today have been a part of this church for quite a long time. And we're so grateful for Jeff and the ministry that he's had over a number of years here in our community and here at Fellowship. We're grateful that he's come to teach us this morning. And we're grateful that we have a chance to sit under the authority of your word, God. Thank you for the gifts that we are able to give. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of the gospel going out to the world, even in such a time as this. It's needed so much, not just here in Middle Tennessee and in our area, but all around. And so, Father, I pray that as these gifts are given, you would bless them to the ends of the earth. And we pray now, Father, that you would give us ears to hear your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering 
upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Well, good morning, fellowship. Uh, Rob, thanks for those kind words again. Those do mean a lot. It's uh, been uh, kind of surreal the last couple of weeks, uh, being up at Brentwood last week, being here today and getting a chance just to open the Bible and preach. It's not something I do much anymore. Uh, since 2010, I've been out doing more counseling and coaching and working with individuals and marriages and teams. And so when Lloyd called me a couple, I don't know, probably two months ago now and said, hey, Jeff, you know, we're, we're looking for somebody to teach a few Sundays this fall. Would you be available to do one? I said, Lloyd, I'm not doing much of that unless it's kind of like one of these standalone mornings where you need something on marriage or something on relationships. I, I do a lot of speaking in that space. I could do that. And he goes, no, he goes, but, but I really think you can do it for us. Uh, we're going through Philippians. And so that immediately triggered in me because that season of life that Rob was talking about when, when we were in 2006, we had four of us who did the primary teaching and for different reasons, three of them were out for an extended period of time. And, and I was kind of, as the Tim Allen TV show goes, I was the last man standing. And, and we happened to go through the book of Philippians during that time. And he said, so we're going through Philippians. He said, I'm sure you've got something you can use. And you know those moments when you say yes a little too quickly? I said, sure. No, you know, that's true. I thought, I'll just find it, you know, blow the dust off of it, polish it up, and I'll just preach that sermon. They won't remember so many years ago. So later, I get to my computer, and I'm looking around, and we did 13 sermons in Philippians back then. I did 11 of them. The one, one of the two that I didn't do was the passage that he assigned to me. <laughs> never fails. You know, you just never can win. So anyway, and what a treat it's been to put my nose back in the book and study a passage that I haven't taught before and to try to bring so hopefully some insight to it for all of us today. That's the beauty of God's word. You know, whether you're in it every day and constantly studying it and constantly reading it or whether you can get away from it a long time, man, when you, when you return your heart to it and you look at it, God seems to always have something to say to us. And, and in these six verses we're gonna look at this morning, I, I, think, I think there's some really super practical applications for us. It's interesting, the last three weeks, if you've been around fellowship, as Brian mentioned, it's just been amazing as we've been going through these first 11 verses in chapter two. And and, and Rob and Lloyd both have kind of, you know, taken the first part of it and they've talked about, let this mind be in you, Paul says. And it's all about how do we imitate this incredible example of Christ? And then week two was, well, what is this example? It's about humility and it's this incredible descending, you know, Jesus who was God and laid aside everything. It's just that constant, you know, down the ladder descent, right? To become a servant to the point of death, not any death, but death on a cross. Just this incredible picture of humility and how we're invited to to use Jesus' example to, to live in a humble fashion. And then last week, Lloyd kind of flipped the other side of it. Therefore, God has exalted him. We look at the exaltation of Christ. And Again, powerful images for, for how we're called to not only live our lives, but to understand the fullness of the gospel. Many commentators say these 11 verses, chapter 2, 1 through 11, we've been in the last three weeks, that they're the most important verses, if not just in Philippians, perhaps in the whole of the Bible, because they summarize the gospel so powerfully. And so now we come to these next six verses, and these next six verses remind me of something that we used to do at fellowship all the time. Y'all, those of you who've been around for a long time, you'll remember back at the high school or even those of you who were at the Brentwood campus back in the early years, at the end of every sermon, we would pause and we would ask a two-word question. Anybody remember? 
There's a lot of old people here today. Yeah. Uh, so what? We, we would ask that question and then we would just pause. We'd give like 45 seconds and say, so what? In light of the truth from God's word today, what's the spirit saying to you? So what? How do you apply this to your life? I think these six verses we're about to look at, they're Paul's so what to this beautiful passage of Jesus who became flesh, who died on our behalf, who has been exalted to the right hand of the father. Paul's gonna say, so what? How do you live? So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna walk through these six verses. I'm just gonna kind of take it through three movements because there's three commands in these verses that I think are instructive to how we live. So I just wanna teach through it, make sure we kind of have an overview of what Paul's actually saying and what he's not saying in a couple of places. And then I wanna figure out how we do a so what with this passage. How might these words apply to where you're living on this fall day in 2021? Starting in Philippians chapter two, verse 12, we'll go just a couple of verses Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's just take those word by word for a couple of minutes. Therefore, anytime that word's there, Paul's pushing back. Well, he's not just pushing back to the previous 11 verses in chapter two, but he's going all the way back to chapter one, verse 27, where he's talking about, here's the way you're supposed to live. And so he's saying, in light of all this truth of how I'm encouraging you to live, the example of Christ, therefore, get ready, I'm about to tell you something. Don't skip the next two words, my beloved. Therefore, my beloved. Y'all, this is just a little sidebar, but, but Paul, when he talks to people that he's doing life with, he speaks so intimately and fondly, my beloved. I'm amazed at how easy it is to lose that ability to, to speak that way to those that we really love. We were at the beach a couple of weeks ago with most of y'all from Williamson County, it seemed like. And while we were down there, we had such a good time. And, and there was this moment where I just pulled back. We were all on the beach and I looked out and there, my four kids, three of them married, so their wives were there. And then, then here are these five grandbabies, which y'all, by the way, by the way, had I known how great grandbabies were, I would have skipped the kids and gone straight to grandbabies. It's just incredible, you know? And here we are, and I'm looking back at these, these 14 people, and I'm going, these are my beloved, man. These are my people. This is where I belong. These are who belong to me. Paul's saying, hey, it's not just biologically we feel that way, but Paul's saying, these people that I've done life with, that I've walked with, you're my beloved. Maybe a practical application, if nothing else from this morning is, who are your, who are your beloved? And are you telling them, you're my beloved? I, I love those two little words. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed. When you hear the word obey, what comes to your mind? You know, for, for some of it, it's just like strict rules, do it right. Y'all, man, as a kid, I knew that if I didn't obey, there was a price to pay. You know, it was gonna be bad news for me. When Paul talks about obedience, he's not talking about it as something that's a response to a threat. Rather, Paul's idea with obedience is always the same. It's an obvious response to an overwhelming truth. So he's saying, look, as you've always obeyed, you know this overwhelming truth that we've just talked about in these first 11 verses about who Jesus is. In light of that, you continue to obey. You continue to respond to such a powerful, obvious truth. It's kind of like responding to the, the, the truth of electricity. Y'all, my, my son just bought his first house and we've been doing a lot of work. I've been trying to help him out. And my dad was an electrician, so I know a little bit about electricity. But when I'm around it, I, I obey the law of electricity because I know I don't want to touch this and this at the same time. It won't go well for me. 
or the law of gravity, you know? I mean, it's not very tall, but I'm gonna obey the law of gravity and not step all the way down to the ground from here because it would not go well for my ankles more than likely. So there's certain laws that are so obviously profoundly true. Well, of course we're gonna respond to them. And Paul says, that's what obedience looks like. Think about that. For some of us raised with legalism, man, we, we hear obedience and it's just like, oh, great. Paul's saying, man, look how beautiful this truth of who Jesus, who descended now, who has ascended to the Father. Look at the beauty of that truth. How can you not respond to such a beautiful, overwhelming truth? Therefore, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more so in my absence. You know, Paul didn't have to put these words here. I think they're there for a reason. He's basically saying this, I'm in prison, so I'm not with you anymore. I'm not there day in, day out with you but I'm hearing the good news about how you're living even when I'm not with you. I think there's such an easy application for all of us on that. It's easy on Sunday morning to dress up and do the right thing and be in the right place. And we have on our game face, right? But Paul's saying that, that true living with obedience, responding to this powerful truth is what we do in every situation in life. It's that old idea of character is revealed in what we do when no one is looking. And Paul is saying, I'm not watching you, but I'm hearing the good news. You're living right. So with this context, with this context of you're my beloved and, and, and you're responding this overwhelming truth and obedience and, 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 and you're, you're, you're doing it without me being there to remind you of it. Here's command number one, work out your own salvation. That's command number one, work out your own salvation. Y'all, in some ways, this has been one of the most in, misinterpreted passages maybe in the New Testament. There are certain cultures, certain denominations that would take this and say, this is a proof text that says, Paul is saying, to get salvation, you've got to really work hard to get salvation. So not what Paul is saying. That would be heresy. Paul is not saying work at your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's not saying work to get your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. Take those two words, work out, and think in terms of work out like exercise or, or work out like how you use dough or, or work out how you tend to a garden. He's saying, look, you already have your salvation. How do you work it out? How do you work with it in such a way that it begins to grow, that you begin to see more of who you are and what God's doing in you? You know, the word salvation, or for some of us, being saved, it, it has three different meanings. It has a past, a present, and a future meaning. In the scripture, sometimes we see that we have been saved. Justification is what we call that. That moment when you or I trusted the good news of the gospel, we trusted Christ, we believed, and in that moment, we were saved. We were declared by God justified, rightly related to him, and forever shall be. Paul's not talking about that kind of salvation here. There's a salvation, there's a future orientation. We call it glorification. It's what Paul talked about in Philippians 1.6 when he says, I am confident of this, that he who, who began a good work in you, he'll perfect it. Glorification is that moment when our salvation is fully realized. We're in this place where the writer of Revelation says there will be no more death or pain or sorrow or tears. All that is gone. Our salvation will be completely fulfilled. That's future tense, glorification. What Paul is talking about is present tense. We are being saved. And he's talking about sanctification. 
He's talking about surrender, as we heard from Brian this morning. He's saying sanctification is the act where God is working in our lives and we are collaborating with him so that we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. In other words, so I can look at my life, I can examine it, examine it in the context of community, examine it as I walk with others, understanding my heart and where its desires are running awry and how do I work that out? How do I continue as I live in the truth that I've been saved How do I continue to be formed more and more to the image of Christ? Paul is saying, work out your salvation. How do we do it? The very next words, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling of heart, he says. This is not necessarily a shaking in your bootstraps fear. He's saying rather, it's an acknowledgement of this great truth of how great God is and what he's done in us, how lofty he is, as Rob said a couple of weeks ago, and how, how unlofty I am, if you please. He's saying, in light of that truth that I am not God, work out your salvation with a sense of not self-confidence in your ability, but rather a confidence in the one who is in you. Because that's what he says very next. He says, and why do we do this? He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. The reason we work out, Paul would say, is because God works in. It's really a paradox. There's a lot of these paradoxes in Philippians. For me to live is Christ, to die is even better, Paul says. That's a paradox, right? This is a paradox as well. He's saying, look, work out your salvation. You do the work while God is at work in you. You know, we can err on one side or the other of this, it seems like. For some of us, we feel like that everything in the way of growth in my life is up to me. I've got to just work harder so I can grow and become more like Jesus. Paul would say, no, 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 work it out. Yeah, do that part, but know that God's at work in you. I think I see other people who who they're so confident that God's at work in me, they just kind of proverbially kick their feet up and lean back and say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. God's at work, and if he wants me to not do that, he will stop me as if we're little divine puppets. No, Paul would say, no, acknowledge God's at work in you, but take your personal responsibility. Work out your salvation. Without God taking the initiative, God is at work in you. Y'all, we wouldn't be able to work out our salvation. Paul's saying, let those two powerful truths come together so that you can live in this first command. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Why? Because God is working in you. Simply stated, There is never a moment in your life or my life, there is never a situation that you and I walk face face to face into when God's not at work. And there's moments we need to be reminded of that simple truth from this first command. Work out, trust God's good work in you because he's always at work in you. There's a second command that shows up and it's in these next verses, verses 14 and following. Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among, among whom you shine like stars, uh, st- shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Remember the context in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing to some believers of the church of Philippi and he's saying, this is how you do unity in the body. This is how you really live together. And so it's in this context that this second command comes along. And the second command are these first words, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, one of the translations says. Y'all, I don't know about you, but this is a verse that I don't do really well. If you don't believe me, just follow me around Kroger, or heaven forbid, if I go to Walmart, follow me around Walmart, 
Or if you see me driving behind some of you, I mean, I realize I can grumble and complain about things that are just so minuscule and so unimportant. So in my mind, since Paul's writing Philippians, just about unity in the church, I can do that, right? I don't think so. I think the command he's saying is do all things. There's no caveat. Do all things when you're at church on Sunday without grumbling and complaining. I can't do that some Sundays. But but Paul is saying, no, here's the way you're called to live your life. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And I I find it so curious that he would set such a high standard for how we're to live. But as Paul often does in his commands, he's saying, this is the preferred way of living the Christian life. And then he's gonna unpack in these next few words and he's gonna say, and there's a big thing at stake of why we should live this way. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Listen to his next words, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. If you're using your little Philippians book and you're marking it up, I'll give you a suggestion. Those first words in verse 15, blameless and innocent, like put a box around those, blameless and innocent. Paul's saying, this is how I wanna invite you to live. If you're you're gonna live without grumbling and complaining, then you're gonna live blamelessly and innocently. That's the way Paul's saying it's the preferred way of living in the kingdom. And, And then skip on down a few more words where he says, crooked and twisted, and put a box around those. It's like Paul is painting this picture. It's a juxtaposition saying, look, here's the options. You live blameless and innocent, crooked and twisted. And you're going, man, what strong words he's using there. Paul's actually quoting, or at least referring to Moses back in Deuteronomy 32. Some of Moses' last words as he's coming to the end of his life and they've been in this wilderness wanderings for 40 years. If you remember the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt and they're on a trip that should take them a month or so and it ends up taking them 40 years. Y'all, there's no Kroger for them to stop in and grab food at, so no Chick-fil-A to go through the drive through for. And so they are just stuck. And yet God shows up in his kindness every day, provides food, manna, we call it. Every day there's, there's food for them to eat. And after a while, you know what they do? They get tired of the same old, same old. So the children of Israel begin grumbling and complaining. Oh no, manna again. Oh, what are you doing? Why can't we have something different? And toward the end of his life, Moses is saying, this is a crooked and perverse generation and you're living with grumbling and complaining. So when Paul uses these words, that immediate audience goes, oh, I, I know what those people are like. That they did not appreciate the goodness of God in real time. And Paul is saying, so live not like that twisted and perverse generation. Live not with grumbling and complaining, but what does it look like to live blameless and innocent? Again, a high bar. He's saying, here's why you do it. And he continues and said, so that you may shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Shine of lights in the world. Does it remind you of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, Jesus says, you know, you're the light of the world, city set on the hill. And he talks about, so let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Why? To glorify your father who is in heaven. Over and over again, Jesus and Paul both are saying, there's something about being light in the midst of a dark world that's so winsome, that's so attractive. And the way you're light, Paul would say, is to do all things, to engage every situation without grumbling, without complaining, without disputing. Y'all, in my lifetime, I've seen such a flip in what the word Christian has come to mean, especially the word evangelical, even as a subset. And I think in so much of our culture right now, the word Christian does not equate blameless and innocent, but it probably equates grumbling, disputing, complaining. 
And Paul is saying, no, what if you were to shine like stars? How? By being blameless, by being innocent, by living in a way that you're truly believing the truth that we've just talked about in these first 11 verses in this passage, that there is a God who is up to something. That truly believing this first command that you can work out your salvation because you're so confident that in every situation, God is at work. See, if we get that first command right, if I can really work out my salvation because I know that God's at work in everything, I imagine I would face other situations with a little different set of glasses, wouldn't I? I imagine I'd look at certain situations and go, wait, God's at work in this. Maybe I don't need to grumble and complain. How do we do that? Paul says, by holding fast to the word of life. How do we hold fast to the word of life? You know, Paul wasn't literally holding up saying, so hold fast to this. I mean, Paul's in the middle of writing this, so he couldn't hold up his Bible, right? But Paul knew the capital W word of life. Paul had encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul knew where truth was found, that it was found in the words of God. And so for us, we have this privilege of having this book. And, And Paul's invitation, I believe very much, is hold fast to the word that's been given to you. Hold fast to the truth of scripture that we shine as lights when our anchor point is God's word. As we'll see later in this morning, I think having God's word as an anchor point is a critical truth in this passage that Paul wants us to see. That if we're gonna really shine as stars, if we're gonna really live without grumbling and complaining, our noses have to be deep in this book. We have to really understand God's truth in any moment of our lives. And finally, he says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. What's Paul saying there? All of this talk about offerings. Y'all, in the Old Testament, when, when you'd go to worship God, when you'd go to, make a, when you'd go to make a sacrifice, when you'd go for repentance, you would bring with you something you'd offer the sacrifice, some type of animal. And usually it was something very precious to you, a lamb. Or, and and you, would, you would take it in and, and it would be offered on an altar and it would literally be burned up as a way to offer up forgiveness, offer up, offer up an offering to be forgiven by God. And before that offering was burned, they would often pour something over it. Think of, think of a bottle of wine being poured over some type of libation. I mean, man, think gasoline. That would ignite it quickly, wouldn't it? But there would be something that would be poured over the offering. Paul is modeling his humility saying, look, your faith is the offering that's being offered up as a sweet aroma to God. All my life is, it's just a little bottle of wine being poured out over it. What he's really saying in the most blunt of terms, he's saying, look, I may be dying soon. And if I do, I rejoice. That, think about those words. I think I'm gonna die soon. I'm in a prison. I don't think I'm gonna get out. So I may be dying soon. My life is gonna be poured out like this. It's all over. And so I will rejoice. And that's where the third command comes in. And the third command are those last verses here. He says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, even if you hear the news that my life has been poured out, that I was killed, never got out of prison, be glad and rejoice with me. That's the third command of this passage. Paul has what I call an eternal perspective. Paul is able to look and say, no matter what happens with my life, no matter what comes next, rejoice. We call it the book of joy for a reason. This is really not a new concept for Paul. Again, I mentioned it earlier in Philippians 1.21. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, to die is even better. Paul has a perspective that's so not what many of us, myself included, live with day in, day out. 
we hold so closely to these things in, the, in this earth. And in some way, rightly so, it's fine to enjoy our family, enjoy our friends, enjoy our community, enjoy our church, enjoy the people in our life. But Paul says, yes, live with joy, but know this. If it's all poured out, if those relationships that you thought were so valuable, if they're all poured out, if they all end, Paul says, I'm gonna invite you. You can still be glad, you can still rejoice. Talking about a passage that sounds counterintuitive. I think this one does. And yet Paul's saying, this is the power of when we believe those first 11 verses in chapter two, that God is great. He is lofty. We are not. He is up to something good. Therefore, work out your salvation, fear and trembling. Know that he's at work in you. Why? So you can live a different way and shine his light in this world. Why? So that ultimately, ultimately, you can be glad and rejoice, Paul says. Well, so what? So what? We used to ask that question. We would just pause and think about it. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts as as I think about this passage and how we apply it to our lives. The job I have, I feel like is the best job in the world. I, I get to sit in an office with people who come in there, individuals, couples, even teams, and I get to watch God do work. Back in the day, I lived in Chicago for a while, and I lived there during the Michael Jordan era of basketball for you basketball fans. And and I was privileged. I had some friends who had really, really good seats. And I've been to so many Bulls games in those days. I I have sat all over that stadium, and I've been at 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 least one playoff game. Every year they won the championship. So I was just blessed and lucky. But one night, I literally sat two rows behind the Bulls bench. Like, excuse me, I wanted to reach out and touch the hem of Michael's garment. I mean, it was like unbelievable how close I was, you know? And, and another night I was literally courtside. And when you sit that close, if you're a basketball fan and you see how fast and how strong and how quick they're moving, I mean, you're just like, wow. That's why I use that phrase about my work. I feel like I have courtside seeds to watch God do work in people's lives. And people come my life. I think this Philippians passage is a great summary passage of what's needing to happen in their lives. I know it's what needs to happen in my lives when I'm in a hard place. See, one group of people that come to my life are struggling with their faith at some level. They, they somehow end up in my office and I feel like I almost am putting my old pastor hat back on. That's not what I'm really doing, but they come in and they wanna talk with me and they'll just say, man, I'm really struggling with this God concept or with who he is or, or what's going on. Some of them have been hurt in churches. They've been hurt with others. And one of the trendy words of our culture right now is you need to, or phrases is you need to deconstruct your faith. That's such a scary phrase if you don't know what it really means. Unfortunately, what it's meaning in this culture, it means, okay, let's see, I'm gonna deconstruct my faith. Uh, I don't like these pages. Uh, Whoops, I didn't mean to really rip that. I don't like these pages. You know, I don't like these pages. I don't like these pages, but I like this part. Or, Or I hear it this way. You know, there's no way that Jesus could expect you to do blank or not do blank. I just think people don't really understand what it means. It's a really scary place to be. And yet in our culture right now, it's kind of hip. It's kind of cool to deconstruct. And Paul would say, by all means, lean in and know what's true. For me, I needed to deconstruct the legalism of my childhood. The legalism that had me believing that God was constantly mad and that God was always ticked off and that he was just looking for an excuse to lay me out. I needed that to be deconstructed, but I need to be deconstructed by finding about grace and mercy and truth in this book, not by something subjective. And so when when we're being invited to grow in our faith, I think Paul's words would be, look, work out your salvation. Sure, if there's stuff that you're hanging on to that's not in line with his book, work it out, but work it out only knowing that God's at work in you and he wants you to hold fast to his word as you do that. 
There's a second group of people that end up in my office and they're those who are relationally stuck. They're just going through a hard time. Man, it can be in a marriage, it can be with a child, it, it can be with themselves sometimes. They're just really relationally stuck. And, and when I see them, I often think of Paul's words in this second command of don't complain and dispute. Don't complain and dispute. Now, y'all, I would never look at a couple that walked in my office, they were having conflict and say, hey, don't complain and dispute, get out of here, you're gonna be fine. I mean, that wouldn't be good, you know? But trust me, there, there's a tape running in the back of my mind going, man, I wonder where they're trying to live by blaming the other. I wonder where they're not owning their stuff and they're not nearly as innocent as Paul would invite them to live. Because I know that's true in my life. I know that when Laura and I get sideways, it's easier for me to tell, tell her what she's doing wrong than it is to slow down and really look and figure out what does it look like to live blameless, less blame toward her maybe, and to live innocent. See, Paul is saying that there is a way that, that we are called to do relationship that invites us to bring hope when we slow down and we trust that God really is at work in us. And perhaps the group that I've walked with most in the last 18 months in this crazy time in our world has been those who are coming in looking for a different perspective. I had a man in my office this week who, an incredible career, great job, loves what he does. And on Tuesday at four o'clock, got a phone call and they said, hey, you'll notice you've just been locked out of your computer. We're terminating you effective immediately. It's just a kind of a corporate downsizing, all the best. That's a nice phone call, isn't it? But there's been a whole lot of tougher calls of loved ones who's gone to the hospital and people who couldn't go and be with them. And through this COVID epidemic, just people dying left and right, loved ones that they couldn't get to. And in those moments, Paul's words about an eternal perspective become really important to have. And they're hard to have. You know, the very first word Paul says in this last part that we looked at this morning, he says, even if my life is being poured out, even if, those two words, even if, in other words, no matter what happens, you can still rejoice. It reminds me of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. Three Hebrew children. And if you remember their story, I'll give it to you in a real quick summary. They're these three favored guys by this king. And this king has a false God. And they're Israelites and they trust Yahweh. They trust the true God. And the king says, hey, bow down to my God. And they say, nope, we're not going to. No, seriously, bow down to my God or else I've got a rule in the land. I have to throw you in this furnace and burn you to a crisp. Nope, we're not gonna bow down. No, please, I really like you guys, bow down. Nope, we're not gonna bow down. I mean, that's the story. But the way it says it in the scripture was one that I used to hear as a child, people would preach and be so excited about three words that were found in there. The dialogue would go like this. Oh, King, live forever. We, you know, we respect you, we love you, but we will never bow down to your idol, even if you need to throw us in the fiery furnace because God is able, God is able, those three words, to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And y'all, my background, wild, rural, East Tennessee Pentecostals, they would shout and scream and yell and be so excited about all that God is able to do. And you know, it's the truth, God is able. God is able to do anything. But the three most powerful words came after that because here's what they said. Oh, King, live forever. We will not bow down to your idol for our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And then these three words, but if not, he's still good and we're not bowing down. Burn us to a crisp. Y'all, that's an eternal perspective that transcends daily living, isn't it? God is able, but if not, not if not, if he's able, but if for somehow in his sovereign economy, he chooses for things to go a different way than you or I want them to go. That's what Paul's saying. Even if, 
even if there's a perspective you can have in this life that transcends what Paul calls these light and momentary afflictions. Y'all don't misunderstand me. Life is hard. Life is unfair. There are things that happen that just simply should not go down that way, in my opinion. And yet even those moments, Paul brings us back to this truth, even if, even if he invites us to rejoice and be glad. I saw a powerful example of these verses a couple of weeks ago. A friend of mine, a father of three young boys or adolescent years and younger, uh, passed away, Charlie. Some of you know Charlie and Kara. They used to be at fellowship in another time. I had the privilege of doing their wedding. I had the privilege of being part of their premarital. I've watched their journey as their life has gone along. And Charlie came down with COVID and, and after about two week, three week battle, um, lost the battle and, and passed from this life. And about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, his wife, Kara, posted something on social media. And, and I wanna read it to you because I think it illustrates Paul's words in Philippians 2 so beautifully and so powerfully. And she challenges me to live with this type of a perspective. Sweetest friends, please forgive me for waiting a few days to post. I know how hard you all have been praying. Friday night, October 8th at 9.38 p.m., Charlie, the love of my life, left this earth and stepped into heaven. I had prayed and asked God that very day that if he knew this was Charlie's time, please do not wait. And I remember thinking, wait, wait, what? You're asking for your husband to go? And she continues, God in his mercy answered my prayer. Which leads me to this, your prayers were not in vain, she says. I know that many are saying, what was that? I've prayed like I've never prayed before. I believe for healing. What was it? I was up in the middle of the night to pray for Charlie. Wait, why? I cried and pleaded and I had faith, uh, had faith and fasted and begged for healing. Why? Why, God? Why? Can you hear the beginning of grumbling and complaining? Kara says, can I tell you why? Because it was never about Charlie's healing on earth. God chose Charlie to bring us into deep communion, some of us deeper than we've ever had with God. See, God wanted us to pray and he let Charlie's life be an invitation for us to pray. We prayed not for Charlie's benefit, but for ours. Because God not only loves Charlie, he loves all of you just as much and he wanted relationship with some of you that nothing else could have caused. Charlie was a sound engineer, a connector, People talked, sang, and made sounds, and Charlie skillfully amplified their sound. He loved that the world was created by sound, that when God spoke sound, the word came into being and everything in it. As Charlie lay in that hospital, you were all lifting up the sound of prayer. I keep thinking that Charlie was still running sound from his hospital bed. God used him to amplify your prayers in the greatest and last production of his earthly existence. And then she gives you a powerful picture of her heart. I will miss Charlie with a fierce pain in my heart until I see him again in heaven. But I am assured, eternal perspective, but I am assured that this was exactly God's purpose. So do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. See how much Jesus loves and adores you. Would those be the words I would write if it were my loved one? Shoot, is that my perspective when I'm just disappointed with a checkout line at the grocery store? Paul's invitation is pretty clear. He's telling us in these six verses, in light of who Jesus really is, work out your salvation knowing God is always at work. 
You can live in a way without grumbling and complaining because you can have a higher perspective that God's good purposes are always going to be accomplished. For an invitation to joy this week, really simply, maybe look at a place of disappointment, of hurt, of brokenness, a place where grumbling and complaining would define you and your life and consider where God is asking you to trust that he is working and maybe he's inviting you to choose joy. Would you pray with me? Father, in every part of my life, in every part of all of our lives, may we allow your word to penetrate deeply this week. May we trust that you are working to accomplish your good purposes in everything. Father, may we, may we live with open hands. May we live in a way that no matter what the externals are, that at an internal place, we are confident that God, you are at work. And so may we be men and women who partner with you as you do your good work of teaching us to trust you in every situation in a new and a strong way. Thank you for the truth of your word, the truth of who Jesus is in every moment of our lives. In his name, amen.